Hello and welcome everyone. My name is Andrew Krauss. I co-founded InventRight with Mr. Stephen Key, our other co-founder around, around 21 years ago. I'm not sure the exact date. I can look it up. But we've been coaching and mentoring inventors ever since. And we're very good at it. We've had students in over 65 countries um, and been doing it over two decades. So what today, what I'm going to do is I'm going to answer your questions about licensing and about inventing. And uh, before I get going with that, though, I'll do a little disclaimer. Anything that I share with you today should not be considered legal advice. Please consult an attorney uh, before moving forward. If anything, it's just something that I have to say. Um, also, the other thing I'll say is don't disclose um, anything that is not already publicly disclosed. So don't disclose what your invention is or anything like that. Um, I did have uh, Lisa drop me an email and... <laughs> She's not a student of ours, but she's a fan. And she asked a question, said, are you live streaming tonight? Can you answer this question? And so I'm literally only going to do it this one time because I see that being a mess. Like people just emailing me all sorts of questions, not even showing up themselves. But what I, but that's fine. It's, she's just trying to get her question answered. But um, if you show up early and you type question, more than likely it's going to get answered. So um, that's what I would say to Lisa and anybody else. It's like, oh, I got this really important question. Um, of course, you know, you can't disclose what your invention is. You can only get so specific, but at least I can do my best to give you an answer. Most people say I do a pretty decent job there. Yeah, I don't think if I didn't, you guys would keep showing up. Um, so this is Lisa's question. This is the only time I'll take a question via email because I want you guys to show up live and type it in. Not like send me an email and then go watch the replay and look for it because um, that would just be getting a little weird. But anyway, um, I'll answer it this time. Lisa says, my question is, it's on my other screen over here. I'm kind of geeky, guys. I got like a whole bunch of screens. But the stripes look really bizarre on um, the camera. Um, my question is, what if I just happen to come up with an amazing name for an idea? Let me pull that over here. So a name for an idea that I intend to license. It's, is it not bright to trademark it? Would a company also have to buy the rights to the name as well? Or what if I were to file an intent to use application? That's an intent to use application for a trademark. And maybe somebody else will want it and the year is up. Uh, what is actually in this case? So um, again, the advice I'm giving you here should not be legal advice. It's just general business advice. What Stephen and myself have found to be true over the last two decades with students in over 65 countries. Um, most of the time, they're not going to use your name. So if you want to come up with a name, that's fine. There's two types of trademarks. There's the common law trademark and the registered trademark. Common law is just the TM with the circle around it. Literally, all you have to do to get that is just put the TM and the circle around it on your literature that you send in the name of your product. And it's called a common law trademark. It's kind of putting people on notice you intend on using it. Um, and so that's all InventRight did for, I think it was about 18, 19 years. We only filed our trademark about two years ago. If anybody got into the space of inventing um, with the name InventRight, we kicked their butt. We could show them two decades of documentation that we've been using that name. So this misnomer that you have to register a trademark is not, is not true. 
I think a lot of people think that. So for those that are new, there's the common law trademark. You can use it in commerce. You got to use it across state lines and stuff. And over a period of time, we did that. Um, and you don't have to file for a trademark. Now, registering a trademark is additional documentation because you filed it with the patent office. Is that a good thing to do? Does it offer, offer you added protection? Yes, I would say it does. I've had done a lot of seminars, full hour-long seminars with uh, trademark patent attorneys, and I believe that to be true. Now, what's the practicality of doing it when you're licensing? Um, I would say more than nine times out of 10, more, I would say 19 times out of 20, they will not use your name. Okay, so if you go out and spend 1500 bucks on a trademark, is that a smart move? Not really. Um, so we're guiding you to spend $75 on a provisional so you don't have to file a full utility and you can say patent pending for a year, it gives perceived protection. And later, if you file a full utility and you reference provisional, you have protection from that date. Okay, but considering how infrequently they're going to name it what you originally named it, um, and the cost for a trademark, uh, I, I would never do it. Steven would never do it. Um, so this now you, you're asking, would the company also have to buy the rights to the name as well? So first of all, when you're licensing, nobody's buying anything. I was, this is me being anal about things, but it's going to, it emphasizes the fact that when you license, they are not buying your patent. They're not buying your product. They are renting or leasing it. And the licensing agreement is giving them the right to rent or lease it for as long as they want, as long as they meet the criteria in the contract, like minimum material, guarantees, sell a certain amount, do this or that, whatever you can get them to agree to in the contract, certain things that are, are normal, usually certain amounts sold so that they stop selling any at all. You could just pull it back. That's why I say you're renting or leasing it. And you're doing, you could do the same thing with the trademark. So it could be part of that package. If they really like the name and you just put them on notice, put the little TM with the circle around it, which you didn't need to file anything with the patent and trademark office in order to do that. And they really like it. Then you, you could go, let, let's say you're getting a really good vibe, like a whole bunch of companies are really liking the name. You could then go out and file a registered trademark. You could do it before, but I'm saying, do you want to financially risk all that money um, when most of the time they're not interested in your product idea and in your product idea's name. Um, and yes, you can bundle that into the licensing deal if they like the trademark. We've had plenty of students do that. Uh, we had really one very odd scenario, which literally the only time has happened in 21 years, um, is the student approached a company and they the company was not interested in their product, but really like their trademark, and you end up licensing a trademark. But that was one time in 21 years, okay? And they actually didn't like the product, but they liked the, the trademark, and they wanted to then buy that from, I don't I have no clue what they sold that for. It couldn't have been too much. Um, but uh, so, no, if you run around filing a trademark every time you come up with a clever name, and also don't fall too in love with the name. Like if they're like, well, it's a big company. And they're like, no, we want to name it this. Are you going to argue with them? I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't argue with them. So, um, so, you know, the thought I think that Lisa's having is I'll miss out or I'll get screwed over in some way. I have never in 21 years of students in 65 countries, I probably repeat that too much, uh, <laughs> uh, had a student get burnt 
by just doing the common law trademark. Could it happen? It could. But are you going to rule your life by, you know, I'm not going to go outside when it's raining because there's a remote possibility I could get struck by lightning if I hear lightning. I mean, some people are like that. You know, I'm the type of guy, my wife was like, oh, there's, I hear lightning in the distance and I was swimming in the pool this summer. I'm like, eh, what's the chances? <laughs> okay. Now you don't have to go that far. I actually literally said that to her and then I'm like, okay, I don't know. Maybe she's making sense, but I, I, I don't live my life by the possibilities. I live it by what's more likely to happen. So, so anyway, Lisa, thank you for the question. Um, Daniel said, do you recommend asking for uh, WFH, which means a work for hire agreement? It's in Stephen's book. So when you hire a contractor, let's say it's an engineer or a graphic designer or somebody like that or 3D prototyper, you should always have them sign a work for hire agreement. Um, always. And you can you can go further than you would get yourself into trouble with, with a potential licensee. So a work for hire agreement can even have an improvements clause saying that any improvement they come up with, you own. So, um, and I, in, in doing that in a, uh, when you're trying to show something to a potential, I see that could really scare the heck out of them. Cause it's like, whoa, they want to own our butts in this entire area. It's not appropriate, but for a work for hire agreement for an engineer or for a graphic designer, totally appropriate. And to be honest with you, I wouldn't work with somebody that that wouldn't sign that. That's a, for that purpose, for a, um, not companies you're trying to license to, but engineers or graphic designers, for example. So um, there's a lot of work for hire agreements out there. And you could even look up work for hire agreement with improvements clause called an improvements clause. Basically it says, if they re-engineer it, think about a different way of doing it, you still own it. You own everything. Um, so yeah, I think that's very smart and it's kind of a red flag if they don't, sometimes they, these contractors won't want to do it cause it's not something they're used to getting, but if they understand why that protects you and you bother to explain it and they still don't want to do it, I would move on to somebody else. Um, okay. Troy said, good day. So maybe Troy's in Australia. We have a lot of inventors, students, students, invent rights students in Australia, tons actually. Uh, good day. When I research companies they often don't have direct contacts and are actually owned by giant retailers how do i get past this they don't seem as open to innovation and licensing so um first of all big companies small companies they all have direct contacts now are they making it clear on who you're going to reach out to no maybe smaller company really small and gatekeeper picks up going oh that would be bob in marketing you know but most of the time you're going to reach out to somebody in the marketing department at that big company I don't care how big they are. And it should be even that same division too. So let's say it's a really big company. We just had one of our um, one of our coaches actually licensed this company. They have over 8,000 SKUs. SKUs are stock keeping units. So if there was three colors of a particular thing, that'd be three SKUs. But can you imagine over 8,000 SKUs? Um, but in this particular company, it's a massive company. And there's still one guy, one guy um, that we introduced our students to. Um, during our bridging the gap sessions. So um, I think, Troy, you're doing what a lot of inventors do. You experience something like once or twice, and now you're making all these assumptions. Um, there's plenty of people to reach out to at these big companies as well as the small. Um, I think maybe you're just calling the main number or gatekeeper, and they're kind of like, 
how can I help you, sir? Maybe you're calling customer service and they're just giving you these kind of generic answers and they don't know what to do with you. But I would reach out to marketing managers or sales managers. I'm pretty easy to do with LinkedIn these days. You have to do it right. Um, we have a program called Smart Pitch where our students come on and our resident LinkedIn for licensing expert comes on and um, Benjamin Harrison. And it's really frequent. You get a, somebody new, they're like, oh, I can't, I wasn't able to get into 12 companies. And, and, and then we tweak them in a little bit. In the same meeting, somebody's like, said, well, I, that was the case for me like three weeks ago, but I just got into 15 companies, you know? So it's normal for there to be a struggle, especially if you're getting zero guidance, Troy, nobody's guiding you through this. So you're more than likely doing some things wrong, but rest assured, you can get into these companies. And yeah, if, if four or five people in this big company all read you this kind of what sounds like a script, this doesn't happen often, where that means their legal team got to everybody in the company said, we don't accept outside ideas. But that is few and far between. That is very uncommon these days. It happens. I'm not going to say, I shouldn't say very uncommon. It's uncommon. It's more often than not that if you get a hold of the right person, they'll say, yeah, sure, I'll take a look at it. So it's, it's better than ever time to be licensing. Um, in the last two decades, Steve and I have been doing this. Um, uh, so this next one is from Margie. She says, what percentage of rights students get a licensing deal? I, Stephen uh, called me the other day and um, he said, Andrew, is this person a student? Because he doesn't have the database, so he'll call me and he'll ask. And I'm like, oh, yeah, there, there was this person was a student five years ago. And he's like, why didn't they reach out to us? And I, what, do you, what do you mean? Why should they reach out to us? Well, I see them on Facebook. They're posting they just licensed their fifth product, you know, and they didn't let us know. And I'm like, yeah, they're kind of on their own, man. They're like, they got it, you know? And so I couldn't possibly know what percentage of InventRight students close deals because the, the two things we do is we make sure our students are doing and saying everything right for the deals they work on while they're with us, but they're becoming empowered with real life skills to license the rest of their life. And, and I, I don't do a lot of sales calls, but I do talk to people interested in the program, like a couple every day, I like to keep it real. So our sales advisors, you know, I'm respecting what they're doing because I used to do it all day long. And with regards to that, you know, you 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 really got to, you really, God, I lost my train of thought there like big time. Oh, what was I? Oh, sorry, guys. I lost my train of thought. It's the end of the day. I should do these at the beginning of the day. Um, so I don't know what I was trying to say there. But anyway, oh, yeah, that's what I was going to say. I remember now. So, um, you know, their main focus with most of them is they've, they've hit one idea that means enough to them that they decide to move forward and, and consider joining InventRight and getting coaching and getting mentoring through the process. But I'm always selling what they're not asking for, and which is empowerment, which is becoming empowered with real life experience so you can do the product the rest of your life. It's almost like an internship or apprenticeship, is, is, and it's with your own product. And yeah, we're making sure you do and say everything right, but you're getting that experience. So you're more comfortable. So you can say at some point, I don't need you guys anymore. So I always verify with people that that's what they want. Because somebody says, I want to license this one product and I never want to do this again. I go, please don't sign up with us because I can't guarantee you're going to license this product. But if you 
put your best foot forward because we're making sure you're doing everything right. And you have the highest chance of success and you want to license other products. You don't have to have any. Sometimes inventors I talk to, they're like, I got a hundred ideas. I got 200 ideas. I got five or I don't have any at the top of my head, but yeah, I come up with ideas all the time, Andrew, but I literally can't remember another one right now because I'm so focused on this one. And I say to them, do you want to license other products? Oh yeah, of course. Then I go, great. Then you're a great match for us. But when people say they don't or they want to make a million dollars overnight or they got this like get rich quick, cheesy crap mentality, I hate that stuff. I, I turn them away. I don't want them as a student because and that's why you don't see complaints about us, because we don't sell get rich quick. We don't sell, um, you know, you're going to make a million dollars overnight. And it's such an easy thing to do that. And we, we just refuse to do it because we're legit because because you're not going to get rich overnight with licensing. Make a lot of friggin' money with one product, but is it going to be overnight? No, it's going to be like a year before it gets in the marketplace. Sometimes some products can get in the market, you know, three, four, five, six months. But right now there's shipping issues with overseas. So it's going to take a while there. And then the first quarter sales are always going to be less. And then it starts to gain some momentum and stuff. So anybody that thinks they're going to make a million dollars overnight with one product and like, like when I get inventors saying, oh, somebody stole my idea. And I'm like, well, when did you show it to that company? Two weeks ago. And I'm like, and you're telling me it's live on their website right now? Nobody can create a product and put it up on their website in two weeks. Like, are you insane? You know? And so um, I get inventors with crazy expectations. But what I found is that if you're truly passionate, which most inventors are about coming up with ideas, you're, you're okay with that. You're like, you just need somebody to tell you, here's the criteria, here are the expectations. It's not going to happen overnight. And, you know, it, it, I, it's a total cliche, but you do what you love, the money will come. And most inventors love inventing. But you got to do the part that you might not love right away, which is getting used to reaching out to companies. and the, the drudgery. We teach you guys the drudgery that is absolutely required. Nothing will ever happen without it. You need to do it. And you'd be surprised a good percentage of our students actually learn to enjoy it. You know, when I can get an engineer enjoying reaching out to companies, wow, that's a breakthrough. Like, because I talked to some engineers and like, they've never made a sales call in their life. They've never tried to sell anything in their life. And so we've got to teach them how to license, but we also have to teach them how to get comfortable with getting a lot of no's. And that's hard for people when it's new. Um, you know, it really is. Um, when I got out of college, I worked for my dad for a very short period of time, and he's an inventor. And but this, the he had a machine tool distributorship, so he was selling computerized machining centers. They range from the stuff I was trying to sell was about fifty thousand to about half a million dollar machines. Um, I got a lot of freaking no's. That broke me in. That was like one of the greatest things I ever did. Um, is 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 do sales a little while where I just get like basically 99% rejection, more than you guys would get with licensing. So um takes a little getting used to. So um Margie, I, I can't say it, you know, because over time people are gonna license different things. Um, let's see, fetters four. Can you license a product? It's kind of fun to say fetters four. Can you license a product? Hopefully it doesn't have some weird meaning and you trick me. But can you license a product to a company that has the manufacturer as a parent company? Okay. License a product to the manufacturer as a parent company. 
I, 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 I'm gonna, I don't understand what you're thinking there, but people do get very confused. So it doesn't matter who manufactures it. So it's the, the company you're licensed to. This is one way I think, I'm probably not saying this right, our head coach likes to clarify it. You're not licensing to a manufacturer, you're licensing to a brand. He likes to say it that way. It's not quite the way I would say it. So if um, there's a line of doorstops and there's this you know, brand and you can see they got doorstops and they got security devices for doors and they got different things and stuff and you're going to license to them. Where they get it made, you don't care. Now, you might care. I care. But I'm just saying for the purposes of this demonstration, you don't care. Maybe they have a captive plant in the United States. Maybe they have a captive manufacturing plant in China. Maybe they outsource it to three different Chinese manufacturers and then they put it together. It doesn't matter. It's the fact that you've got a company, a brand that is selling in the major stores where you want to be. That's all you need to know. Okay. So um, Fetters 4 is saying, can you license the product to a company that has the manufacturer as the parent company? Hell yeah, you can. That's normal. You know, absolutely. You can do that. So you don't care where they get it made. You just care that they make stuff and they market stuff because the people you don't want to reach out to most of the time is a contract manufacturer. You don't want to just go like on Thomas Register somewhere. Well, I'll just find manufacturers for doorstops. Well, if they're contract manufacturers, then they're making stuff, but they have zero distribution at retail. That is not the kind of company you want to reach out to. You want to reach out to companies that are already in the stores where you want to be, not companies that can make your type of product and don't have any distribution. Because contract manufacturers, they might make a particular kind of product for 50 companies or 100 companies or thousands of companies, okay? That's not who you want to reach out to. So Fetters 4, if you have a company um, and that company, their parent company would be manufacturing it, yeah, well, that's normal, absolutely. Um, Jeff said, I've sent my sell sheet to a rep at the parent company and now he's gone radio silent. Would it be okay to send it to someone at the sub subsidiary that would actually be making it. Um, I sent my sell sheet to the rep at the parent company. Reach out to everybody. Uh, he's gone silent. Did he, did he ever engage with you? So, you know, until you get that person that sticks there with you, just reach out to everybody in the company, parent company, subsidiary. Hell yeah. There's nothing wrong there. He's not responding to you. Now, if you, if you reached out to him, you had a nice conversation and then you reach back out, let's say five days later, and now it's been two weeks since he's got back to you. No, he might be on vacation. Don't go around him if you if you established a relationship. But when you have not established a relationship, Jeff, it's OK to reach out to everybody. But once you establish that, don't betray them. Now, if they haven't gotten back to you, you've reached out four or five times over two months and they haven't got back to you. Okay. Maybe reach out to somebody else too then, but, um, oh, okay. Aaron said, Hey, Andrew, thanks for including the toilet paper toy on your product wall. Thanks. You're the best. That's cool. Um, to Waleed. Hi, Andrew. It's, is our electronics products easy to be licensed? You know, I think they're a little bit harder, without a doubt. The, the question is, is your change an electronic change or a physical change? So let's say a company is making a certain type of electronic product, but you're literally just changing the form factor 
where it doesn't require them or you to change the innards. And you just put a hinge over here and it's going to be for this effect because it makes it easy to hang up. Then it's almost like you're not working on an electronic product. But I find that electronic companies that make electronic products, like really electronics, not a little gadget that has one AAA in it and it flashes when you click on it or something. Okay. But they're a little harder to license to. And, uh, but it can definitely be done. But the question is, is it, uh, is it going to be easy for them to go, oh yeah, that's just a new injection mold. We can do that. Or is there a lot for them to look into? And if there is, you should cite similar examples. It might be for a different product, for a different purpose, but you could show them, hey, this thing's electronics, 1995, kind of has a few of these features. Might You can, might be using it a completely different way. Cite some examples so that when they're thinking about is this going to be expensive to make that you can immediately show them that it's not? Um, you got to be careful about working on electronic products if you have zero electronic background and it's something to do complicated with the electronics. Now, if your change, you see it in another product, I mean, it might be for a different purpose and you can cite, well, they did it and they're selling for 95, so I know you can. Well, that's okay because you can show that somebody else has done it. But like, well, it's got to do this and this and this, and uh, it's got to slice and dice and do all this stuff. Company's going to be like, ah, really? You know, because it's really harder to launch an electronic product. So you got to be careful about that. Is it harder? Yes. Um, is it doable? Yes. But if you're just completely and utterly clueless about how any of this electron, this your particular electronic works, but you've got these pie in the sky suggestions, I might work on another product. But if it's like, no, it's pretty common sense. I could cite these examples. I could, you know, I, I think it has a clear benefit. I know it could be made at a reasonable price. I'm not trying to get them to add a hundred new features. I'm just trying to get them to add this little thing here. Yeah, you know, then absolutely, I think it's I think it's doable. Uh, let's see. Ethan said, hi, Andrew, are there any plans to update Invent? Yes, or is the content on their final? Um, uh, Ethan, I don't know if you're, so we have this, this website that's for uh, high school kids and younger, um, and it's free and it educates um, kids on how to invent. So yeah, we haven't really updated Invent Yes um, thing there for a while, Ethan. I think attending these live Q and A's is great. Don't have any immediate plans there, but thank you for the reminder. Um, that's something we're due for high school kids for free. Um, let's see. Joe said, is getting some type of liability insurance for your LLC also recommended, or would that depend on the type of products you license? So um, that's up to you. Again, I can't offer legal advice, but um, Joe, when you license a product to a company, first of all, you should... When you're in the midst of a deal, you don't have to have it done before. But before you sign a contract, it should always be under your LLC, not your personal name. Now, if you guys don't have an LLC yet, you could wait to get in the midst of a deal. And if you tell the company, look, I want to do this new LLC, they won't be like, well, you were doing business under that other name and now you're doing under this. What's well, not okay? Like, they, don't, they don't care. They just want your product. Okay. So don't feel like everybody needs to run out and file and get an LLC. Okay. Um, but... One of the things that, that we're very insistent on or encourage the students to get in the contract when our negotiation coach, Paul, is guiding them is uh, that you're covered under their product liability insurance. Most of these companies, they'll have a million or two million for every product, which it sounds expensive, but it's not. And retailers won't take on companies unless they have product liability insurance, especially brick and mortar retailers, right? And so what's funny is like it doesn't cost 
these companies a dime more. It might be an exception. I haven't seen one yet to put you personally on that same million or two million product liability insurance. It doesn't cost them anything. Now they argue about it pretty frequently, and we're like, no, you should check with your broker. It's not going to cost you anything, and we're kind of a little pushy about it, and we advise our students to be. So, Joe, you would be covered under their product liability insurance. So you got a couple things going on here. And I, I've given this talk many times, but I'll keep it short. So first of all, if some client or some customer wants to sue, they're going to sue the company, not you, because they don't even know you exist. So that your name's not on the back of the package. Most of the time, they're not looking up pro like patents to see if your name is on a patent having to do with that product. So they don't even know you exist. So if they're going to sue somebody, they're going to go after the company, not you. But if they go after the company, they're covered under their product liability insurance, right? And so are you if they go after you, but they don't even know you exist. So first form of protection, they don't know you exist. Second form of protection, you got an LLC when you do a deal. And then third form of protection is you're covered under their um, product liability insurance. I have never in 21 years have one of our students get in trouble. I've never even had a student say, oh, I have this ladder product and somebody got hurt and the company let me know, and now this, this individual is suing the company. Um, now, maybe the company wouldn't even let the inventor know that sort of thing, but I've never had that even happen. So um, you're covered every which way till Tuesday, but Joe, maybe you've been very successful in life and you got a ton of money in the bank. Um, you got to do what's right for you, but you getting product liability insurance for a product that you're not selling, but that you licensed, that seems very weird to me. Um, can't say no, but I don't even know if that would be possible. Um, okay. Uh, it, it To me, it would be overly cautious. But again, that's not legal advice. Uh, uh, Fab Fabi? Uh, hi, Andrew. For provisional patent applications, do I need the second or 3D drawings? Do I need 2D or 3D drawings? Sorry. I can't find someone to draw my invention, and I am trying to find trying to do it myself. It's difficult. Appreciate the help. So, I mean, one other thing you can do is you can actually, you can take a picture of your product. You can tape it underneath a glass table, put a piece of paper on top of that glass table or tracing paper, and you can trace and you can kind of do a pretty decent line drawing that way. You'd be amazed. So that's one thing you can do for your own drawings to do them yourself. Um, you should be able to find a high school or a college student. You throw a rock these days. I'm always... I can barely draw a stick figure. I've been meaning to start practicing every week and start drawing and stuff, but I haven't got around to it. I've been meaning to learn Brazilian Portuguese as well because my wife's originally from Brazil, uh, but I haven't got around to that either. I, my Portuguese is pretty crude, but I did play around with it this weekend. Anyway, it's not, not an easy language if you ask me. No, it's not just like Spanish. It, people say that. It's harder, I think. Um, but so... What's 2D or 3D? So, yeah, you can do 2D, 3D, whatever the heck you want. There are no formal requirements for drawings in a provisional patent application. So if you're just like me and it would be... Now, I could take a picture of a product and then put it on a... Uh, tape it underneath a glass table, put a paper on top and trace. I'm pretty damn good at tracing, actually. And you just trace the lines you want. So that's a way that somebody like you and me, Joe, that aren't that good at drawing yet, and I say, yeah, because we can be if we want to. We can do anything we want um, if, if, if we desire to. Uh, you, that might work for you. But a high school or college student, you can show them some similar products. They can sketch that up. I mean, 
you can find somebody, man. You're just not looking hard enough. Um, and so there are no formal requirements for drawings. You could scribble with a piece of, with a crayon if you wanted to, and they would take it because that's how provisionals are. There are no formal requirements for how you write it. Are there rules of thumb that it should look good? You want, like, if you need to send this to a company at some point, that's never the first thing you do, by the way, if a company emails you back to send me your, you got a provisional? Okay, great, send it to me. You would never do that. Not because you're worried about getting ripped off because that's not the reason why. It just doesn't move the deal forward. So this perception that you should just do whatever a company asks you to, like, most deals will die that way. I'm not kidding. Don't mean to shock you guys, but if you just like respond, like, oh, that's what they want. Okay, I'll give them. I'll give them. You, you will. It will significantly hurt your chances of doing a deal because you gave them the wrong things at the wrong time. It didn't take them down the right path, and that's where our negotiation coach comes in. But you got to be really careful about that. So, you know, some of you may never join the InventRight coaching program. So, what I'll say for you is. Don't just do whatever they ask you, okay? Um, so, and I know that's not really super specific, but just so you know that big picture uh, vibe, very, very helpful. Um, am I like complimenting myself on my answer? That's terrible. <laughs> what did I just do there? Uh, let's see. Okay, Paul said, hi, Andrew, can you license a new version or variation of a product that is being licensed? do you both get royalties so it really depends yeah we've we had we had um this particular product here this is interesting um uh, chuck licensed this he's one of our former students it's a it's a chew toy pretty cool chew toy for dogs not for humans by the way that thing's gonna fall down there put that on the floor <laughs> um so he had approached this is a very unusual scenario i've literally never seen this happen um, this company, a pet product company, and somebody else had already approached him. Uh, sorry, somebody had already, another inventor had approached a pet product company, and he approached them, and it was more or less the same thing. And they were like, uh, we got kind of a problem here. And the company approached both of them, said, would you guys like to work together? And they said, okay. And now they both shared in the royalty. Now, this is bizarre. I've never seen this happen before. But they both share in the royalty, and now they're like best buds, and they work on developing products together. And they were introduced by the company that had gotten more or less the same idea from both of them at the same time. Is that a normal thing to happen? No. And if if I wanted to relay something big picture again, I see inventors new to this, like experiencing something once or twice, and then assuming it's always the case. If you want to help yourself, please don't do that. Don't. That's going to hurt you. It, people will have very little experience and they'll make these broad assumptions that it's always like this. D don't do that. Okay. So, um, so Paul said, can I license a new version or variation of a product that is being licensed? Yeah, you can, but man, that's like, you're already coming in there and there's an, if you know of an inventor and if you're talking about our students, like that's just not cool, man. So let's say you see, an inventor, inventor product and submit it to a company. And now you're trying to give them this really obvious like variation. Like I see that when you see an inventor success story, like that's the inventor's territory, like back off. That's not cool. Um, but if you just see that there's a product, you said specifically saw that somebody, an inventor had licensed this. Well, how would you normally know that? So if you just see a product that a company is doing and you want to give them an improvement or variation to it, 
I say go for it, but I would say don't even do that unless you can reach out to 20 other companies. Sometimes people want to invent for one company. And I'm like, that's not a good use of your time. So one company sells this one very particular product, you want an improvement to it. You're going to file a provisional patent and then do a whole sell sheet and all that just to submit to that one guy at that one company and then say, nah, I'm not interested. My God, that's a bad use of your time. Now, if that same product could be licensed to 20 other companies, I'd say go for it. That's fantastic. Now, I'm not going to say you never make an exception. Like you get, you really like this company and you really like this one product they have and you really feel like you can improve it. Should, should you still submit to that company if you really want to? Yeah, you should. But you should always ask yourself, could I tweak this, make it different or exactly the same? And could all these other companies license it too? Now, when you're evaluating which projects to work on, the answer is yes. And when people are new to this, I don't find that inventors spent much time at all evaluating which projects to work on. They just get obsessed about one particular project and they don't let it go. So um, if you can get to the point where you're actually evaluating multiple projects, figuring out which to work on, we get new students all the time come on board and they'll be like, hey, I'm open to working on any of these five, but it's a small fraction of our total new students. So uh, would I say that's typical? Would I say that eh, maybe... Maybe 10% at most would say that. I would say 90% were like, no, this is the product. Yeah, I got other products to work on, but this is the one I want to focus on now, which is fine. Nothing wrong with that at all. But you need to get to the point where you're really evaluating the upsides and downsides of the project. So the point I'm getting to is to invent for one company, this just this variation, just for this one company, not a good use of your time. But, if, but it, you know, the thought's going to come up, oh, I could help improve their product. Then you think like, Oh, could I license all the companies too? Yeah, well, maybe I can't license exactly like that because they have a patent on that particular tweak, get around that, these other That's perfectly fine. So um, I like that question. Um, I like all these questions. You guys got great questions. Um, uh, Rosetta said, do I license, do I need more than a sell sheet to try and get a doll line licensed? Um, you might not need, need much more than that, Rosetta, because, you know, uh, you know, if you're copywriting, like technically the artwork or the way the doll looks now, if you, if the doll has functionality, you should always file a provisional patent application if it has functionality. So let's say it pees or my daughter's nine. So, you know, uh, my, my daughter and my wife are obsessed with the American girl dolls they are like kind of these expensive dolls, but my daughter actually got a doll that looked like her. I thought that was cool. The one she's getting for this Christmas, hopefully she's not listening, um, does not look like her. It's different. But it's really cool. Like, they're so into it. I got kind of into it. I'm like, oh, you can buy the bed. You can buy this or that. But And then Target has their own version of American Girl doll, which is, um, you know, I don't forget the name. I forget the name, but they have their own version of American Girl doll, their own, like, knockoff, if you will. But let's get back to the question. So Rosetta said, do I need more than a sell sheet to try and get a doll line license? I would, if it has functionality, I would definitely file a provisional for 75 bucks. Um, if not, no, I think you could just try to license the, the, the doll line. And just the copyrights are going to protect you with regards to your artwork. Because you get a license on line of dolls, you better have some artwork on what this thing looks like, right? So you probably have that. So you're kind of covering under copyright with that. Um, so again, everything I share tonight's not legal advice, but you might not need more than that. Now you need to know how, 
who to reach out, which companies to identify, you know, know how to make that list. You need a very good sell sheet, Rosetta. It's rare that I see non-invent rights students have good sell sheet. I, I talked to a non-invent rights student last week and I actually told him, this is, this is a, and I told him it was a great compliment. Your sell sheet is okay. And, and I said, that's a great compliment because usually when I see sell sheets from non-invent rights students, it's just really weak to absolute garbage. I'm not kidding. So you guys need to know that because if you bother to reach out and you have, you, you know, you're, you're, you're taking your time and your energy to reach out to like 30 companies and you reach out with a garbage sell sheet, you are completely and utterly wasting your time. Not to mention burning the bridge if it's as bad as some of the stuff that I've seen. So uh, a doll is a particularly, um, it's not fashion, but it's kind of fashion. And so it needs to have that certain look, that certain style. It's got to have the right colors. Anybody that sells dolls, like if the doll has a certain look and then the entire sell sheet is completely the wrong vibe for how dolls are sold, you're going to really distract them with that. And they're going to have to look past it. So uh, Rosetta, yeah, you know, I would say provisional patent if it has functionality. If not, um, you can go with your copyrighted artwork and stuff. There might be some other options, but I think you, you'd probably be good to go there. Um, again, not legal advice. I hate to have keep saying that. Um, let's see. I lost track of where I was. Uh, Fabi, just random here. Um, oh, that was the next question. Uh, Fabi says, uh, I forgot to add how many images required for the PPA? None. Nothing is required of the PPA. You could you could take a crayon and just put a red X like this and turn it in. They would accept it and they would give you a date. There's no requirements. You don't have to include any drawings. Is it beneficial? Absolutely. Um, there's none. There's no formal requirements for a PPA, provisional patent application whatsoever. But is there a good rule of thumb? So when they see, let's say, let's say you put three drawings in there, Fabi. And sorry if I'm not pronouncing your name right. And you, when you send that to your marketing manager, it's not so much for the patent office in that at that point in time. It's like you don't want them to be distracted with drawings that are so bad they're distracting. You know what I mean? I'm using the word distract a lot there. But you get the idea. Um, so if it kind of looks like a patent drawing, that's fine because there are no formal requirements for how you do drawings. So you can do a nice line drawing will kind of look like a patent drawing to the untrained eye as a marketing manager. And it doesn't matter. They don't, I think a lot of marketing managers barely know what a provisional is, you know, but they're, they're going to look at it and go, oh, this looks nice. Yeah. Okay. You know? Um, so I know that's a weird non-legal thing to say, but that is true. And you guys need to know this kind of sort of stuff. Um, well, Stephen, I think we covered this at the beginning. Maybe you were late. Lisa asked this question. You're should I trademark and put my invention before or after getting the licensing deal? So uh, 19 times out of 20, they won't want your name. So to spend all that money on a trademark from a business perspective, that could be a huge waste of money. But you could always file it once you get some traction on it. Um, you know, a reg, a common law trademark is just you putting the circle TM, the TM and the circle around. It's literally all you have to do. Now, you need to look up common law versus registered trademark and such. But um, yeah, you search the USPTO site, nobody else has that name. So 
pitch it with that name if you think it's a good name, but realize most of the time they won't use it. And if they do, that could be part of the package that you license the trademark and you could file it when you're in the midst of the negotiation is probably when you do that. But it's pretty rare. I've Our students have done it. They've bundled the trademark with the patent, but it's like they're trying to license your product, right? Are they going to go, oh, we're going to screw you over. We're going to get to it first. Like, no, like they want to license your product. You're going to hold them, them to paying you royalties in the licensing agreement. So you just kind of wrap the trademark in there and you can go ahead and file it. I would even go as far as to get a really solid thumbs up that they really like the trademark and want to license it before you'd even spend the money because deals fall out. So you want the deal to fall out and then you spend all that money and nobody else cares about the name. That wouldn't be a smart move, would it? So there's a right point in time during the negotiation with the way we've guided our students. But again, that's not legal advice. Um, Okay. Rick says, hi, Andrew. If I have an idea where I apply a PEEP, apply a PPA, but the product keeps evolving as I'm developing it more. Can I create unlimited PPAs on the idea? Yeah, you can, but you're getting a little, you're, if you start to do that, you're getting a little paranoid and weird. So, um, you know, I wouldn't recommend filing a, this is not legal advice, but I would recommend filing, like, for, I'll give you an example. When we have new students that come on board, like, um, like I said, I don't do sales calls that often, but when I do, um, the inventor will be like, so what's the first thing? I'm going to file a provisional patent. I'm like, hell no, that's not the first thing you're going to do. You're going to study the marketplace. You're going to work on your sell sheet. You're going to make your list of companies. In the process of doing all that, nine times out of 10, there's something you want to tweak and that you could then add to your provisional patent because you became very aware of the micro category of all the products in that space. Okay. Now, if you gives you the warm and fuzzies to file one provisional and you've got that placeholder in time, that's fine. It's only 75 bucks, not the end of the world. So then, you know, three months later, you come up with another revision and you're like, oh, I, yeah, I could, I could, you take the existing provisional has A and B in it and you add C. And then if a month later you come up with something else, you could file that same provisional again and add D and you'd be protected from each new piece of material from the date you file each one of those provisions. They are not connected in any way, shape, or form from a date standpoint. They all have one year from the time they filed them. So if within that year you file a full utility and you reference all those provisionals, you'll get the dates from what was in all those provisionals. And if there's something new covered at a slightly later date, you'd be covered from that date. But to just continually file provisionals, to even file a provisional when you have no clue on how to reach out to companies, you got no marketing presentation, you got no list of companies, it's kind of a waste of time. And people do it all the time. They get the warm and fuzzies, they're protected, and they sit on their hands for a year. And it's no big deal if you didn't make public disclosure, you could just file that provisional again. But it's 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 uh, it's the wrong, improper order of things. So am I going to say you come up with an idea, you should never go out, especially if you're using our software or something, and file a provisional for 75 bucks early on, if that makes you feel comfortable. Is 75 bucks well spent if that makes you feel more comfortable. Once you get more experience with this, you can file seven provisional on a nice, simple product. Um, it's not uncommon for our students to maybe file an extra one or in a very complicated product. You might have two or three, but um, 
it's not that common. Most of the time, it's just not necessary because nobody knows what you have or don't have in your provisional. So the thought that somebody will come up with that exact same variation for your second provisional or third provisional in that short period of time where you could have waited and just included all the new variations is so unlikely. And literally, in the last 21 years, I've never, ever seen it happen. Could it happen? Yes. But are you going to are you going to run your life by, I'm going to get struck by lightning, I know it, I know it. And that's, I'm going to get struck by lightning sort of thing. So um, can you file multiple provisionals and then file a full utility and reference them all? Yes. Is it a smart strategy a lot of time? Yes. Especially when it's a really smart strategy is when you're working with a company. So a lot of inventing is done after a company shows interest. That's something that inventors, new inventors don't understand. So in that case, like they have a complaint or they mention something. You're like, yeah, let me think on that. And you come up with a new variation. Go ahead and file a provisional on a new variation and then show it to the company that was already showing interest for a problem that you fixed or a new version or whatever. That's a really smart time to file a provisional. But just to, you know, you're not ready to reach out at all and you just keep filing provisionals for two or three years and they keep expiring. Like, what's the freaking point of that? That's just kind of silly. Now you could say, well, every time it's giving, protecting me for a year. Yes, it is. But it's just, you know, it's just uh, it's just not a good use of your time or money, you know. Um, Steven said, should I get an LLC before or after getting a licensing deal? I, I said kind of neither. I'm not going to tell you what to do, Stephen. You need to decide. You need to contact a legal advisor, figure out what you want to do. But most of our students will do it in the midst of a first deal. So it's technically before they close the deal. They didn't have an LLC. Company showed interest. They get really far in the deal and our negotiation coach will tell one of our students that has interest in their far along in the deal, you need to file an LLC. This deal needs money LLC. You never want to do a deal under your own name. So it's actually neither before or after it. it well, you said it's it's in for most of our students, it's in the midst of a deal, which is before. So hopefully that was helpful. Uh Troy said, do I need an ABN business number? Not sure what it's called in the US to license products. You don't need anything to license products. This is the US, Troy. Yeah, screw, screw all that regulation. We got plenty of regulation places, but to approach, so let's break it down, guys, because I like that question, Troy. Because some in other, we've had students in over 65 countries, and in some countries, like it's so formal, like, oh, you can't even have a business conversation without a license. It's like, are you freaking kidding me? Maybe that's an impression of some people. For you to privately approach companies to license a product to them, you need nothing. Anybody that would restrict free speech in that way is ridiculous. You're not selling anything. Now, do you need a business license in the United States and you need to file with the IRS when you're selling something? Like you're selling tchotchkes on eBay or Amazon or something. Yes, but licensing, you're not doing that. You're trying to put a deal together and they're going to sell it. So no, you don't need, I can't think of a single thing you would need to approach a company to license the product to them, Troy. And I'm glad you asked that question because it sounds like you're not in the U.S. No, you don't need it. And you're approaching U.S. Canadian companies. I wouldn't suspect you'd be violating anything in your home country, wherever that is. So um, that's just stupid to think that people would need to have a business license in order to approach people about a potential deal when you haven't sold a single thing. Um, 
So I love that. I love that question. Yeah, Rick's. Yeah, you you. He said then you use whatever PPA that are still current. Question mark. Yeah, use whatever PPA that's still current, right? Um, and if if one expired and had something old in it, you could file another one. You could always be current. And, but you've got to once you make public disclosure, you're screwed. Okay, so what's public disclosure? Selling it at a swap meet, putting it up in a public YouTube video, having an entire website up. Once that's been up for a year, you've lost all your rights. So that's why you privately show it for a license. So you can't just continually file provisionals forever if you've made a public disclosure. You've only got one year then. So um, it's called the one-year on-bar rule. I think there's another name for it. So you want to be very careful about that. That's why when you're licensing, don't post on Facebook and try to get 100 likes. Don't do that stuff. Now, if you've been venturing your product and selling it yourself, fine. It's pretty all up public, you know? But if you're trying to license it, don't publicly disclose it. You're going to mess with your rights, okay? Um, uh, as Asathora, okay. Um, hi, Andrew. I'm working on a PPA for a product has included a base, a refillable element to it. If I decided to go the licensing route, which percentage would the percentage commission apply to both? What? Okay, that's a weird question. So you have a you're filing a PPA. We're talking about okay, here's your misperception. You're thinking that you can't do a licensing deal without a patent, and that's not true. Our students file provisionals all the time. Companies are like, we don't care about a patent. If you want to file it, great, but we'll sign something that says we got to pay you regardless. So what Astora is here is thinking, like, I've got these different features of the patent, of my provisional patent, and are my royalties going to be applied to both, and it's completely irrelevant. So, you know, if when our negotiation coach helps one of our students do a deal, if we can, which we can't always, we'll make it not dependent on a patent at all. They got to pay you regardless. And a lot will agree to that. People are shocked by that. So to think that you cannot license a product without a patent is complete garbage. It's totally not true. Okay. So, but now you're going even further. You think it's tied to the patent, which it can be. You get plenty of students where they're like, well, if the patent doesn't issue, you know, it, it has to be for this technology that's patented and they're asking you to get a patent and maybe you take your advance on royalties and give that money to your patent attorney. Um, but Asora is thinking like, I'm going to get royalties based on this and this fe feature. And it's like, yeah, they could put the screws to you and say, if you don't get these features, we don't have to pay you. But I can tell you our negotiation, Paul, coach Paul is going to fight tooth and nail to make sure that's not the case because that's extremely rare. And you don't want to do that. But anyway, so your name was Zahina. That's not much easier than Astora. Zenya. Zenya. Okay, Zenya. I got it. I got it. I like these names from around the world. It's kind of fun. Uh, let's see. Sam says, I've been waiting three months for an interested company product manager to at least give me the courtesy call or email, but they haven't. So today I emailed and asked him to please give me an update. Why do you wait three months, Sam? That's an awfully long time to wait, you know? 
That's, I would never wait that long. Christopher says, thanks for these. Diane, uh, what point do we need a patent attorney? Well, the ideal point you need a patent attorney using our approach is you're gonna file a provisional patent application and then you're gonna to talk to companies and if they're showing interest, not the first thing you're gonna say at all, but at some point it's gonna come up about patents. So let's say they care about patents. Preferably they would give you some money as an advance on royalties or as an advance, and you could take that money and it would, and then use it to file a utility patent. And because it's gonna protect them as the licensee and you as the licensor. So preferably you'd need an attorney then, like you, you, you're fishing off the pier with a provisional patent application, okay? And then you get interest from a company that they may or may not give you the money as an advance on royalties or as an advance, but if they can, that's ideal. Then you give it to your patent attorney and your patent attorney will then file a full utility and reference that provisional, okay? So that's how it works. Now, if you can't get them, then you're gonna have to file for the utility, but most of the time you can at least get a little upfront money and put that money towards the, the, uh, the patent application. Um, and you know money's coming in sometime soon, so your risk is reduced dramatically. You see how, like, when somebody goes out and they spend 15 grand on a patent, you don't know if anybody's interested. Why would you take that risk when the patent office gives you a year to go fishing and see if there's interest? And then if there is, you get the company to pay for the patent. When I explain this to people, they're like, oh, yeah, why wouldn't I, you know? But people get a false sense of moving forward by throwing a bunch of money at a patent attorney. And people actually tell me like, oh, I filed a patent, I've done a lot. I'm like, that's like nothing. You didn't do anything, the patent attorney did. Now, if you gave him a lot of great advice and product variations and stuff, okay, maybe you did do a lot. But in most cases, when I see inventors jump the gun and file a patent, they did, not, they did next to nothing. They did a terrible job on what they gave to the patent attorney. And they risk financially having spent all that money when there's they don't even know if there's any interest yet. Why? It's not necessary when I file a provisional for a year because they feel like it's a um, acknowledgement that your product makes sense. Getting a patent doesn't mean your product makes sense. Doesn't mean it's sellable at a reasonable price. Doesn't mean anybody's going to be interested at all. It's just getting a patent because the patent office isn't assessing the. Uh, the viability of the product. They don't care about that. They just care about what claims you're trying to get. So um, don't confuse working on your invention with throwing money at a patent attorney. They're not one of the same. I'd say it's actually the opposite. Now, of course, you're gonna need to pay a patent attorney at some point for a lot of products, so don't get me wrong there. But um, uh, Hi, Andrew, I'm in Scotland with a patent pending on a no on a no-brainer mega product, okay? So would it be okay to approach potential U.S. licensees? Absolutely. We have we have students in Scotland and around the world, and you're going to be way more likely, if you just focus on Scotland, a, a lot of Europe is still a little bit old school. You know, um, in the U.S., we've got this weird mentality, like nobody with no college education, no credentials, like if you have the drive or the determination, you can do anything. And there's this, like... It's at the back of every, every American's mind that this is possible, that anybody can make it. It's part of the American psyche, okay? And so when you approach a person, yeah, they're in a large corporation. They might be a bit of a corporate drone or working in a company, but they even they have a little bit of that still. So they're okay with receiving ideas from the outside. 
in some European countries, it's still like, well, who are you? What are your credentials? What's your company name? Blah, blah, blah. What's your portfolio? Like, you'll get a little bit of that in some European countries. It's gotten a lot better, I would say, over the past five years. But God, would if you're in Scotland, just to give you a frame of reference, would I only focus on Scottish companies? Hell no. No way. They're going to be so much harder to license to. Now, should you approach some Scottish companies as well? Yeah. Now, if it's a Scottish company that's really big in the U.S., I see that as the same as an American company. It's an Asian company, a European company. And there are some huge European companies that are really big in the U.S. Just approach them here in the U.S. And they'll approach the U.S. folks because they are going to be more open than their European counterparts. But I see that as no different. So you would never, ever want to limit yourself to your own geography if you're in Europe. Now, reach out to some Scottish companies. You'll find what I said to be true. But American, Canadian companies, very open. European companies are big. So let's say it's a Scottish company. Let's say it's a, a German company. And they're really big in the U.S. Same, that's the same thing as an American company to me. Okay. Let's say they sell 50% of their product in the U.S., 50% in Europe. Same thing. They're going to have the right mentality because they're going to have Americans working there and they're going to be open to outside ideas, hopefully. So, um, yeah, absolutely. It's OK. And if you didn't do that, you'll be like this licensing thing doesn't work. That's that would be your response. More likely if you just try to reach uh, to folks in Scotland, um, we have Americans that have licensed to European companies as well. So we get European deals happening, but it's not nearly as common as licensing to American or Canadian company or European company big in the U.S. and Canada. To license to a company that's only in Scotland or only in Europe, when you see that they're not in the U.S., automatically they're going to be less likely to be open to licensing. Does that mean you don't approach them? No, you can still approach them, but automatically less, less likely. Okay. So, all right. So I'm kind of tired. I had a long day. Um, let's, uh, so I'm just going to close it out here. Um, if you guys could click on the subscribe button and the little bell that you notify when we do these live streams, that would be great. And thumbs up all our videos. That way of saying thank you to me for the entire hour of my time to answer your guys's questions. Um, so if you could do that, that would be great. I'm not just like, you're not just watching a passive video. I took an hour of my time. So if you could do that for me, that'd be fantastic. If you already says subscribe, don't click on it um, because then you'll be unsubscribing. But I would love to get us to 80,000 subscribers within like around eight months or so. I don't know if that's realistic. I would love to do that. So if you guys can help me out as I helped you out, I'd really appreciate that. All right. So take care, keep inventing, and we'll catch up with you next, guys. Catch up with you next time, guys. See you guys. Bye.